This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for December 2022. Usually I try to start the On the Shelf episodes with a bit of general chat or philosophical introspection. But since I found myself ranting a bit on various topics later in the show, I'll just note the turning of the seasons and a hope that you're all getting through your to-be-read stacks for the year. After the blog marathon in October to present the edition and translation of the Grangine trial record, I feel like I was slacking a bit in November, just covering four journal articles. The first was a delightfully image-filled exploration of classical Greek vase paintings showing female pairs in the context of romantic and erotic symbolism. The article by Merrill Altman has the in-joke title, Parthenoi to Watch Out For. Not an article technically, but the text of a conference paper, which, alas, never seems to have been expanded into the more detailed study the author promised. After that, I covered three articles all touching on medieval Arabic topics. The first, From Semantics to Normative Law, by Sarah Omar, looks at the logical structures and argumentation behind how charges of same-sex acts were treated in Islamic law. The other two look at homoerotic topics in the 1001 Nights. Zaida Antrim's Kamarain, The Erotics of Sameness in the 1001 Nights, discusses how early versions of the tales feature ideals of beauty and desirableness that don't follow a gender binary, raising the question of whether attraction itself could be considered gendered in that context. The other article, I Am Not Good at Any of This, playing with homoeroticism in the Arabian Nights, by Frank Bosman, was less relevant than I thought it would be, as it focuses mostly on apparent scenes of male same-sex erotics. In December, I expect to continue cleaning up some of the random journal articles in my to-do folder. And then, perhaps in the new year, I'll pull something from the bookshelf for a deeper dive. I haven't been doing any serious book shopping for the blog lately, which means I really should go look at some of the academic press catalogs and see what's come out while I haven't been paying attention. In the context of the new and recent releases of lesbian and sapphic historicals, I'm doing something a bit unusual this month, and holding off on including one title due to the ongoing strike by HarperCollins employees. The HarperCollins Union has indicated that one way to support the strike is for reviewers and readers to hold off on promotion of HarperCollins titles until an agreement is reached. Therefore, I've taken note of the books that I'd otherwise be including in this list, and we'll cover them in a later episode. There was a time when queer books were mostly the province of small independent presses, and maybe we figured that the doings of major publishing houses were irrelevant to us. But even though the majority of the books I include in these listings come from small presses or are self-published, the big five publishing conglomerates make up a substantial fraction, close to a quarter of the titles I mentioned in 2021. And the visibility of queer books from those major publishers has a wider effect on the market and on reader expectations. 
Some of the issues being raised by the HarperCollins Union include diversity and inclusion among publishing staff, which can definitely have an impact on what books get chosen and how they get promoted. It behooves us, as book lovers, to care about the larger dynamics in the publishing world, whether it's an openness to queer characters in mainstream books, or the ways in which monopolistic systems depress author income, or how technologies help or hinder the distribution of books in ways that benefit those who create them. We've been getting some strong reminders recently about not entrusting our communities to corporations that are primarily concerned with making a small number of very wealthy people even richer. Twitter has been an enormous benefit for community building, for publicizing work, for networking with other authors and readers. And despite the long ongoing struggle around trying to improve the safety and usefulness of the platform, most people assumed it would continue more or less as a fixture. Now we've seen how fragile those Twitter communities and dynamics were. It only took one obscenely wealthy man to decide he wanted Twitter as his plaything, and now it's broken and we're all scrambling to rebuild those networks. The most vulnerable and marginalized are scrambling the hardest. In this context, I should note that I've moved most of what had been my Twitter activity over onto Mastodon, where you can find me as Heather Rose Jones at Wandering Shop. The Twitter accounts for me and the project will remain for now, but socializing will be on Mastodon. The queer book community has an unfortunate habit of piling our eggs into too few baskets, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Amazon. Self-publishing and ebook distribution have been wonderful for readers and writers of niche genres, but I wince every time I'm putting the new book list together and see a book that is only available through Amazon. In the time that I've been actively working on using non-Amazon links in the show notes, Fully one-third of the books I mention are relying solely on Amazon for distribution. And, of course, if we're looking at self-published books, the rate is much higher. What happens to those books if, no, not if, when Amazon decides to mess with the availability of queer books? What happens if Jeff Bezos decides books in general don't have a high enough profit margin and disappears that part of the business after having leveraged his clout to drive other options out of business? This is the devil's bargain that people make every day when they trade healthy, complex economic systems for convenience and the simplicity of one click. This, I confess, is the sociopolitical rant I go off on most often. When we fail to be mindful of the sum consequences of all our individual decisions as producers and consumers, we are complicit in our own eventual destruction. <sighs> Deep breath. That being said, here are the new and recent books falling generally in the category of lesbian and sapphic historical fiction. There's one October book that, while not technically having a historic setting, may appeal to fans of historicals. Julie and Winifred's Most Excellent Adventure by Heather Massey from Crackerjack Creatives. In 1838 England, spinster mathematician Winifred Blackburn helps her inventor brother build a time machine as an instrument of good for science, only to discover his diabolical plan for using it to manipulate history. To stop him, she steals the device, but when her heist goes wrong, she uses the time machine to avoid capture and accidentally leaps to the year 2030. Meanwhile, in 2030 America, Julie, 
queen of all geeks, Sherman, enjoys a lucrative job, an adorable cat, and a treasure trove of comic book collectibles. But finding the love of her life is the one achievement she hasn't been able to unlock. What good is her golden nest egg if she can't share it with anyone? One fateful day at a comic con, Julie encounters a disoriented Winifred and helps her recover. The situation takes a wild turn when Winifred proves she's a genuine time traveler. This time-crossed couple wins the romance jackpot, but danger threatens their happily ever after when a mysterious er intruder appears, bent on stealing the time machine at all costs. To help Winifred escape back to Victorian London, Julie has to act fast, even if it means losing the woman of her dreams. The majority of the new books this time are catching up on November books. Observations on the Danger of Female Curiosity by Suzanne Moss from Aeschylus Books is inspired by real-life female scientists of the 18th century. Thea Morrill, Georgian heiress and eligible lady, is not normal. At least, that's what she has come to believe. She loves nothing more than spending hours at the study of natural history, collecting fossils, insects, dead fish, bones, and even the odd spider. Up to now, she, was, she has held off her mother's entreaties to marry, but this year something has changed and the pressure is growing. While observing and experimenting in her search for scientific truth, Thea also begins to acknowledge a truth about herself. A most inconvenient one, which sparks at the lips of the electrical Venus and bursts into flame in the presence of the very proper Lady Eleanor Harrington. Has her obsession with the male-dominated world of natural history caused the unnatural tendency she can't seem to control? More importantly, what is she going to do about it? And if that sounds intriguing, the author has a free prequel story, A Defense of Astronomical Curiosity for Ladies, offered to those who sign up for her newsletter. The show notes have a link to her website where you can sign up. This prequel tells the story of aspiring astronomer Harriet Nichol, her intended, the dastardly Courtney Marriott, and the significant complication of socialite Emma DeClaire. A slightly different take on the Roaring Twenties than some of the books we've been seeing lately is My Life with Rachel, A Tale of Two Women in 1920s New York, self-published by Ariel Archer. June 29th, 1921. Ariel Archer and Rachel Selinger, two sisters, arrive on Ellis Island from Europe, beginning a new lives in America. Finding that they must keep the true nature of their relationship, and indeed other aspects of their actual identities, a secret, they embark on a journey of discovery in a new home, New York. A place they call home for the next nine years. My Life with Rachel, told in the first person through Ariel's point of view, is a story about confronting the harsh realities of the American dream, about the role of fate, chance, and choices as part of the human condition, about living amidst the changes of progress, but also trying to cope with things that hold us back, and ultimately about the power of friendship, companionship, and love, especially when that's all you have left and you have to start over again. Step back a century into the Roaring Twenties. Prepare for some history some drama, a bit of romance, and a few surprises. From the cover copy, it isn't entirely clear that this next love triangle ends up with the two women together, but I think we have enough variety of stories that it's okay to take a risk. So check out Elsie Sees It Through, self-published by Derek Ansel. London, 1943. The war in Europe is raging. 
After Elsie bumps into a young soldier, they are both attracted to each other and in time become close friends. Elsie lives with her widowed mother in a small North London house and has a close relationship with her longtime friend Julia, who would like that relationship to become more personal and intimate. After the young soldier Brian proposes marriage to Elsie, she doesn't know who to choose. Conflicted, Elsie doesn't know what she wants or what she believes is her destiny. While sweeping changes take place across England and the rest of the world, Elsie must come to terms with her life and her future and navigate a difficult, thorny path to happiness. I am still grumpy that Janelle M. Ferreira, who has been one of our fiction series authors, let me find out by chance on Twitter that she has a new collection out from Nikaila Press, The Fire and the Place in the Forest, Collected Stories and Poems. The circle is always closing. In crazy times, this essential collection of the fiction and poetry of Janelle M. Ferreira holds out a branch of lights kindled from chosen futures and pasts always close behind, where history never confines itself to one familiar face, and selkies and demons offer as much inheritance as memories, bodies, or ghosts. Intimately Jewish, integrally queer, these are tales for holding on to. They know how to remember and to change. 18 years of stories and poems from small queer presses, zines, podcasts, and other corners of the universe are collected here, alongside new work for the first time. I wanted a more concrete description of the contents and asked Janelle if the collection fit into the historic lesbian's theme, and she replied, and I quote directly, I think historic lesbians is really all I do at this juncture, but yes, we got your gas lamp New Bedford lesbians, your steampunk New York garment district lesbians, your 1816 Virginia lesbians, your of course I wrote a Holocaust one lesbians, and as you know, your pale of settlement lesbians, with a smattering of young dyke of the 90s poetry, mostly because poetry zines die fastest. Meg Martle has trained me to look forward to her annual Christmas Masquerade series from Nine Star Press and hasn't failed me yet. Volume number three is A Chaperoned Christmas, and as usual features a broadly queer cast while centering a romantic couple that will appeal to sapphic readers. Candida Damerel avoids two things at all costs. Her former hometown, Salcom Bay, and her former lover, Broderick Carlyle. She's worked too hard to shake off her sad family history in Devonshire and become a premier London hostess, to think she nearly threw it all away for a bohemian charmer like Broderick. He never understood Candida's need to keep their secret romance, well, secret. Unfortunately, this holiday season, the fates seemed determined to thwart her best efforts at self-preservation. Broderick Carlyle is not surprised to see his estranged lover on the same coastal railway platform a fortnight before Christmas. Who else could tempt him into such a backwater at this dangerously jolly time of year? Not the country rustic whose need for society chaperones is the alleged reason for the visit. What Broderick is not prepared to learn is that this windswept bit of coast is where Candida grew up. Even more alarming, the country rustic is none other than an earl's daughter from the neighboring estate. Lady Sophia Luscombe has no intention of leaving her beloved Devonshire and her new horse breeding business for smelly, snobby London, especially not under the guidance of two society chaperones. What if they manage to get Sophie married at last? No, she will distract her sophisticated visitors by making them fall in love with each other. The intimate entertainments of a West Country Christmas will make it easy to force the two together. It would be the perfect plan. 
or it would be if only the too perfect Candida were not Sophie's secret first love. Just as the web of cross-purposes frays to breaking point, a masquerade ball arrives to give these fierce spirits one last opportunity to tell the truth in time for Christmas. Is it too late for a second or even a third chance at love? I suppose we could count that last as functioning as a December book, but there are only two titles officially released in December. The Captain's Choice, a sapphic seas romance by Ren Taylor from Epicea Press, follows the usual sapphic pirate romance storyline. Wales, 1707. Mona Lloyd is desperate to escape a wedding and a future with a man she doesn't love. When she stows away on the only ship to visit her sleepy village of Ogmore by sea, she learns the ship isn't all it seems, and neither is the beautiful, aloof captain that helms it. As Mona fights for acceptance among the ship's crew, she is also fighting a growing attraction to the alluring captain. Captain Eleanor Davies promised herself she would never fall in love again. She has everything she ever dreamed of, a ship of her own, a loyal crew, and wealth beyond her wildest dreams. But when a pretty young stowaway appears on her ship to challenge everything she holds dear, she has to choose between her responsibility to her crew and her heart's true desire. Can the two overcome their differences and a tragic past, or is history doomed to repeat itself? Follow Mona and Eleanor to the Caribbean for the steamy, swashbuckling romance filled with adventure, danger, and desire in the golden age of piracy. Adele Lane's Wellington Mysteries series from Past and Prologue Press diverges from the previous volumes in presenting a collection of shorter works under the title Daunting Dilemmas. Stetson has been fooling London for ten years while her fictitious alter ego solves crimes. But could a criminal mastermind put her carefree days of sleuthing in jeopardy? Evelyn longs to be recognized for her talent. Were her music proved to be the key in helping Stetson solve a mystery? While Jack the Ripper terrorizes London, Stetson closes in on the art thief she has been after for months. However, will catching him place her in an impossible position which threatens to expose her? A collection of five sequential novellas, each encompassing its own exciting mystery while furthering the story of Stetson's life in London. So those are the new books for the month. Another new thing I've started doing recently is boosting these new titles into my social media feeds. Discoverability is the biggest hurdle for queer books, and I strongly encourage you all to mention the books you're reading and the books you love in your social media to help people find them. And what have I been consuming? I'm still focusing far more on audiobooks than print, mostly for the multitasking potential. This month I took in Olivia Atwater's Victorian fairy romantic adventure, Long Shadow. This is a sequel to a previous book, Half a Soul, which I haven't read yet, but the book fills you in on the backstory you need. Another series where I jumped in on book two is A Restless Truth by Freya Marsk. This is, again, a sort of magical Victorian romantic adventure, which we seem to have been seeing a lot of lately. As for the prior series, where I dipped in on book two, the overall series focuses on a series of queer romances, but book two is the only one with a female couple. When I included Even Though I Knew the End by C.L. Polk in the new book listings, I wasn't sure exactly what the historic setting was. Now I can assure you that it's 1930s Chicago, complete with supernatural gangsters and deals with the demons, and a very, very central sapphic romance that drives all the protagonist's choices. 
I don't mention my TV and movie viewing as religiously as the books, but here are some items worth noting. I want to give a very strong recommendation to The Woman King, a fictionalized treatment of the Dahomey Amazons in the mid-1800s. Even aside from providing a strikingly different view of colonial West Africa, the central aspect of the story is the tight bonds of loyalty, friendship, and love between the women of the Agoji warrior band. If you like the energy and power of the superhero movie Wakanda Forever, which I also saw and recommend, then I recommend you seek out The Woman King, which adds in some overt sapphic elements. For the aforementioned movies, I wish I could get the same vibes with a bit less emphasis on violence and fight scenes. I'm not getting that from the Netflix series Warrior Nun, which is about a secret convent of demon-fighting nuns with bonus science fictional elements, Vatican intrigues, and angels, maybe. Again, lots and lots of violent fight scenes, sufficiently mitigated by overt sapphic threads in the plot. And you just have to forgive a show when it's willing to include casual lesbians. Another very queer series that just released its second season is Young Royals, which follows the entirely too realistic struggles of a teenaged heir to the throne, exploring same-sex love and heartbreak at an upper-crust boarding school. There's a temptation to shout at the kids, Dial it down! Chill out! Adolescence isn't forever! But that's really the point of the drama and angst, and the series handles contemporary issues in realistic ways. I haven't decided on a podcast topic for the December essay show yet. I've been trying to space out the trope shows a bit to make sure there's some variety in content. But if you have a favorite trope that you want to make sure is included, speak up. We'll close out the end of the month with our last fiction episode of the year, From the Bird's Nest by Jennifer Nostoiko. I felt that Jennifer really captured the dynamic of a later 19th century romantic friendship in this epistolary story, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. And, of course, in January, we'll be open for submissions for next year's fiction series. Wait, how can that be coming up so soon? I hope that the choices are just as hard as they were last time. Spread the word and point all your author friends to the call for submissions linked in the show notes. I've been trying to get back in the habit of having an author guest every month, helped by having interviews set up for our fiction series authors. This month, I invited Marianne Ratcliffe to talk about her recent gothic romance, The Secret of Matterdale Hall. We are talking today with Marianne Ratcliffe, whose debut novel, The Secret of Matterdale Hall, came out last month. Welcome, Marianne. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the story? Um, yes, yeah, so The Secret of Matterdale Hall, it's a historical gothic mystery, I'd say, with a bit of a side order of, of sapphic romance. It's set in the Victorian era, so the mid-Victorian era, um, and it basically features um, Susan Mottram, who's a naive young lady who's had the, basically lived an idyllic life until she's 18, and then her father dies suddenly and plunges the family into debt. They had no real, no, no idea at all that they, he was carrying this debt behind them, and so she's forced to kind of find work. Uh, to support her mother and her sister, and she ends up, you know, with little, you know, little opportunity, little um, uh, options for a sort of middle-class woman of that era. She ends up taking a job as a school teacher in a remote boarding school in Yorkshire, um, little realizing her predecessor has disappeared in mysterious circumstances. And obviously, she re soon realizes she's bitten off much more than she can chew, not just with the job, but with with other things that are going on. So she finds life there is not at all as she expected. 
I think that's hopefully enough of a teaser to to give people an idea of the flavor of the book. I, I feel like many of us have gone into jobs that felt like that. Well, that's it. That's it. I'm sure there's no one at some point hasn't been in a job where they've gone, I really want to get out of this. But, you know, that was kind of what I liked about the premise, the fact that really she she gets there and she she kind of wants to quit and come back, go home. But she can't because she's kind of she has to earn that money. You know, unlike some of us, she, she can't just go, you know what, I'm going to hand in my resignation and you know, go back home. She kind of has she kind of has to stick it out. So there's that kind of conflict to her, you know, being feeling trapped in this job and, and finding it really difficult, but, but not able to kind of leave. Yeah. In your bio, you talk about falling in love with literature of the 18th and 19th centuries and how you deliberately wrote Matterdale Hall as a sort of homage to those books. So classics, but with lesbians this time. Uh, tell us about integrating queer characters into a literary genre that historically didn't treat them very well. Yeah, so it was a great summary of, of exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> like the classics, but with queer characters. And so, I mean, the approach I took was to kind of almost kind of write in the same style of that era because there's a lot left unsaid, right, when uh, the writing of that era. And so that gives you an opportunity kind of to write about lesbians, you know, in a way that you don't have to be quite um, 100% clear about what's going on. You can be a bit subtle. But yeah, essentially, you know, I wanted to take the approach of writing just kind of like, you know, the, the, the sort of classics, obviously with a with hopefully with a more modern sensibility about certain things, of course. Um, you know, it's important not to over-romanticize the past, the books of the past. There, there, are, there are obviously areas that were problematic just because of the time and the era they were written. Uh, but I did want to capture some of that flavor of those kind of books, the escape, you know, give the reader the idea, the impression that they were sort of escaping into one of the books written at the time. But yeah, I, I, I sort of think as um, the blog I did that, that that you read, Heather, about you know, whether to include sex scenes or not. And obviously, given that I'd made that decision to stylistically kind of mirror the, the books of the past, obviously to me that a sex, an explicit sex scene just didn't work um, at all. So I, I haven't got one in my book, but hopefully, you know, um, it does still, it can still feel romantic and still feel... Um, that people can feel the you know the the emotions of the characters uh, even without that explicit um, you know sex element. So I got, I got onto there quite quickly from where I was going, but um, yeah. Um, yeah and, uh, you're talking about the the blog that sort of caught my attention, where you're yeah. talking about the 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 difficulty in the modern readership expecting if it's if it's a a sapphic book that it will of course have sex scenes. And, you know, as you point out, you know, there are these works of classic literature that we consider, you know, wonderful writing, and they don't have sex scenes. And, and even historic romance novels, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, with all that she's got some problematic elements, Georgette Heyer is, a, you know, a, 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 an icon of the field. She doesn't write sex scenes. That doesn't make her, you know, a, a, a bad writer. And, and I, I really empathized with the blog you wrote about that, that issue where the people who expect, because it's a lesbian book, it will have sex scenes, and then it feels like they're ignoring everything else that you're trying to do in the book. And I, uh, when I wrote my historic fantasy series, it was very much the same, the same reasons that I'm trying to write a particular flavor, a particular style of book. And that just isn't part of it. And 
it, you know, it's like not all cake has to have icing. But yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, I'm not against a sex scene, uh, you know, and even in historical fiction, like there's some, there's some um, books where it really works. It really fits with what the author's trying to do. Um, I mean, a good example is, it's probably Lucas by uh, Elder Holtz. I don't know if you read that one. Where you know it's basically, I mean, it's a it's a sort of spin off of Jane Austen, so I'm a bit of a sucker for those. Um, but it's all about the kind of the way the Charlotte Lucas now Collins character is kind of swept away by her physical passion, right? And so you you know, and and, and it doesn't hurt that the sex scenes are beautifully written. Actually, in that book, I think they're exceptionally well done. The way that um, the author kind of you know it, it still fits with the kind of you know the innocence of the character, but but also the fact that she's just swept away with this passion. So I'm I'm not against um you know sex and social fiction. Just the way I was writing my book, it absolutely didn't didn't fit with that. And yeah, I was sort of you know I want people to read my book and enjoy it, and I don't want people to be disappointed. And if, if someone's coming going, oh here's a sapphic picture book, it's going to have sex scene, and they they you know plow their way through my my you know 18th century stack you know style writing only to be disappointed you know I don't want that to happen I don't want them to be disappointed so yeah I thought I better give people a heads up as to, as to what to expect. Well and, and you know you, you you also touched on you know a, a part of the that larger question when you when you talked about you know trying to have a more modern sensibility about you know certain issues you know we don't want to when we write historic fiction we don't want to sanitize the past but we also don't want to like punch our readers in the face by saying, you know, it was, there were these awful things going on and I'm going to insist that you like, you know, uh, read all about them. And and I think that this is part of a, a larger issue where it's, to what extent are we writing from the era and to what extent are we writing for our readers? And and there's always a back and forth there. Yeah, yeah, right. I think I agree with that um, and yeah. I think it comes back to my my sort of thinking about obviously I I fell in love with these books sort of age sixteen and and love isn't always rational and so there's some of that element of love where you think well you know they're not perfect and you know but you don't love people for being perfect do you you kind of you know actually that's one of the things I put in the book you know there's something chilling about perfection it's one of the lines that Susan says at some point you know I think we love things that are flawed and you know so I do genuinely love these historical fiction but yes I think I'd I'd be doing it a disservice if I recapitulated all of the things with those, including, you know, the, the kind of race, you know, it's not just the gay people that were excluded from historical fiction. Yes. You, don't have, you, know, you don't have non-white characters or you don't have, you know, foreigners are terrible and generally, you know, evil and you know, very bad people. Um, you know, you don't see people with, with disabilities, et cetera. So, you know, obviously I've, you know, tried as well to, to, to increase the level of diversity um, in the book as well. So there's, there's yeah, it, as well. It sounded like you and I have have at least one similar goal when we're writing historic fiction, which is to write aspects of our own identities or the identities of people around us into that favorite genre where, you know, when we fell in love with it, you know, maybe it was very hard to see ourselves in it. It felt more distanced. And it, it really feels like you're you're that's one of your goals is to to put a mirror into the books more. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of almost you know fill that gap that I feel you know yeah exactly loving these books, but 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 where am I in that? I mean, you've written some really interesting and detailed blogs, Heather, that I've read about you know finding the lesbians in eighteenth century fiction. I mean, you know, and and I, you you opened my eyes to there being some there. I mean, I I basically thought well there aren't any apart from maybe 
maybe Marion Halcombe in The Woman in White. She was the one character that I saw as well. She's, she's, I think she's gay. It's not obviously not overt, but she's coded as gay. And also quite positively, it's not, she's not dismissed for, for being this kind of man, mannish. Well, I mean, there is some of that, but she's, she's basically a really, you know, sympathetic character. Uh, and other than that, I mean, I've not really seen any people that I could say, well, you know, even coded as gay. Like, you've opened my eyes to a few more, but they're still quite rare to find, and it's still largely in the context of, you know, immoral, immorality, isn't it? And just say, yeah, so so yeah, I wanted to create some sort of positive representation of because, you know, lesbians were there in the past. And, you know, we should be we should be allowed to enjoy historical fiction and, and see ourselves there as well. So are there any other projects you're working on currently that you'd like to tell us about or that you're able to tell us about? Um, I mean, I, I have a couple of books in the pipeline, but obviously we're focusing on the launch of Matterdale Hall at the minute. So I am working on that with my publisher. I haven't even thought about showing them my next book. I, mean, I do have a Regency, it's more of a pure romance, actually. So it's got less, it's got, it hasn't really got the gothic elements. It's a pure romance that I'm, I'm quite pleased with. I'm hoping they'll like it, but, you know, who knows? We've, we've got to basically see what happens with Matterdale Hall and if it by it to, to make another book, you know, worthwhile. So, yeah, I do have some, I do some that and some other things ongoing, but uh, nothing that's that I can say is going to definitely make it into the public domain. So, so uh, you say that this other project that you know is sort of uh, you know possibly in the works um, is more of a, a a romance type structure. So, you would not consider Matterdale Hall to be a romance as such. It's got a romance in it, uh, but that's not the main plot. So the main plot is sort of this mystery to figure out this mystery. But at the same time, you know, Susan meets Cassandra, this this mysterious enigmatic woman, and there's a mystery about her as well. It's all bundled up. So, you know, I mean, there are plenty of you know stories like that where you have kind of the, the main strand, but there's a you know, there's definitely a romance that goes along with it. But so it's not just about that. It, it, it's all of the the issues of genre and how you classify things. And so much of it is the marketing of how do you set the readers up to receive it, it, it as it was intended. And and yeah, so so marketing it as, you know, this is a gothic versus as the romance, um, you know, it's frustrating, but it's it's so important. It's good, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's like I, I have, it's always too many words. I'm like, which word am I going to miss out of, of my mystery slash gothic yes. slash thriller slash slash sapphic slash romance? Like, I can't, I can't have all those words. I need to lose them. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's where I don't know if you're familiar with with archive of our own and, and the fan fiction archive and all that, and and they do that. They've got all the tags for all of the things they want you to know about a story, and and I know a lot of uh, authors who who are at least in their social media they're leaning more to like you know putting in all the tags just this, like the, this list of keywords you know okay now i'm not aware of that so i'll have to look into that yeah. <laughs> so i always like to ask my guests to share their enthusiasm for something you've recently read or watched or consumed in some other fashion is there anything that you'd like to uh share, share the joy about <laughs> sure. Well, actually, I've just I've just very recently finished a book called Tangled Roots by Marianne K. Martin, uh -huh. which is uh, I mean it's been written a while ago, uh, and I can't remember who recommended it too much. I can't remember how I came across it, uh, but I was intrigued because it has sort of a bit I guess a bit like Matter of the Hall has a you know white character and then a mixed race character, and in Tangled Roots it's the white character and a black character in a different era. So Tangled Roots is set in the, in nineteen oh six. 
And it's just such a well-written book. I mean, I I loved it. I mean, right from the beginning all the way through, it's written so sensitively from the point of view, you have multiple points of view, but mainly the white and the, the you know, Nessie, the black character, and Anna, the white character. And it's really, you know, you really get a feel for getting inside these characters. And the beautiful relationship they have, it starts as a childhood friendship and then develops from there. Really, uh, really one of the one of the best historical lesbian fiction books, actually, I think. I would well for me uh, obviously everyone's taste is different and I've just recently read it so maybe my enthusiasm is is at its peak at the moment and maybe when I've settled down after a few months I might put it somewhere else but I, I mean I really would, would definitely recommend that one too. So if listeners wanted to follow you on social media where should they look? The best place is Twitter so Twitter's where I do my sort of writing marketing that's where I sort of engage with with most of the you know, sort of writing community there. I mean, I have a page on, page on Facebook, but I've only just sort of started that from an author point of view. I've tended to keep Facebook for my real world friends. So, you know what I mean? The people that I know in the real world. So I've been using it mainly for that. Although I, do, I have joined some groups and there's quite a there's quite a big lesbian group community of writers and readers on Facebook that I'm just starting to kind of get into. So I'm quite enjoying that. So either of those really, Facebook or, or Twitter. So your, your Twitter handle is Ratcliffe underscore MJ. That's it, yeah. And then you have a website. I do have my own website, yes. I, I blog there occasionally, just, you know, I've got a few blogs on there every, every now and then. And, you know, people are welcome to sign up to my newsletter if they if they want to sort of get the latest news. Of it. Uh, and that is MarianneRatcliffe.com. Yeah. So hopefully easy to remember. <laughs> so thank you, uh, Marianne Ratcliffe, for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. Great. Thank you for having me, Heather. And it's lovely to meet you finally, having read some of your blogs and really enjoyed them. So well, <laughs> it's you. great to actually see you in person. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 